Hey listeners, we're going to do things a little bit differently here with this episode of Frederick Uncut. Here at the News Post, we're in the middle of a series called A Marriage Con, done by our own Heather Mongiulio, and we're going to follow that story through the first part in this episode, and then the rest in the second episode. So let's get into part one of this two-part series. So, Heather, could you sort of set the scene of where you were in December of 2018? Sure. So I was at the Frederick County Courthouse in December of 2018, December 18th of 2018 to be exact. And I was meeting with Monica Gabriel. She was there for a divorce hearing for a divorce case that had been settled about seven years ago. Monica was there because she was owed alimony by her ex-husband, Curtis Williamson, and he had failed to show up to previous hearings and was now being held in contempt of court. And what are some of the things that you heard Monica talking about when she was testifying? So to start off, Monica had reached out to me a couple months ago um, after you and I had written our domestic violence series. She'd commented on it on Facebook, and I kind of had reached out to people who commented just asking if they'd be comfortable sharing their stories. And she kind of emailed me and said, hey, I've got this really interesting story for you. And a couple months ago, i between us talking but then she said hey meet me at the courthouse you can come sit in my divorce hearing and I can tell you a little bit what's going on so immediately I knew it was already a domestic violence case but I really wasn't expecting to hear quite what Monica was about to tell me so Monica starts off by telling me that she never wanted to get a divorce um, which I think is pretty standard for people who might be in a divorce case Um, and then she tells me that Her um, ex-husband had abused her, which I kind of expected with the domestic violence case. And then she tells me that he declared her dead, not once, but twice. And I think that's when I kind of knew that this was a story that was going to be a lot different than anything I had ever reported on before. And what is Monica's connection to Frederick and how did she meet her ex-husband? So Monica actually grew up in Boonesboro, which is in Washington County, but pretty close to Frederick. And she attended high school and middle school with Curtis Williamson, and that's how they met. They were just friends when they were growing up in school, but they were then planning their 2009 um, high school reunion. And Curtis Williamson reached out to her and asked if they could connect again. And they started emailing and then talking. um, And then they started dating. And at that time, Monica was living in Frederick. And so Curtis, who was living in Pennsylvania, told her that he was in the area and they started meeting up in person and dating and then he moved in with her in Frederick and got they got married and lived in the house that she owned in Frederick. And did anything about their marriage stand out? Well, so she told me six months into the marriage that it got abusive. Um, but before that, he was like pretty charming. Um, she talks about a bracelet he gave her after dating for three months, um, just kind of how he was like this really charming guy. Um, And she just thought he was comfortable and someone she could trust because she had grown up with him and they were friends. So you kind of see your old high school friend and in maybe a different light and you think I can still trust them because I have years of history with them. She knew his parents. She knew where he's from. She knew his family. Um, So I think that kind of stuck out was a little bit weird. But then um, the abuse started and she said that one of the things that really would trigger the abuse is anytime she'd ask questions. Um, So if she, as as the marriage went forward, uh, went on and she'd get more curious or she'd ask about questions especially as she learned that maybe she was declared dead or um, learned that he had been using um, one of her credit cards or opening up credit cards in, in her name she would ask questions and he would respond with abuse and the abuse would get pretty violent um, at one point she said that he had um, held her up against the wall he had definitely tried to strangle her 
Um, so she was definitely in a point where she was afraid for her life. And with this controlling behavior, you sort of mentioned it went just beyond controlling her as an individual. He was in charge of her finances. And what did that allow him to do? So, yeah, so he was um, in charge of his finances. And I think the way he did that was kind of the, well, why don't you let me handle this? Or like, why don't we just, you know, put your bank account or your paycheck into our bank account that we share Um, even though he never ended up putting her name on that bank account. So she thought her mortgage, she thought her bills, she thought her car payments were all being paid off by him every month, just like you might do with a relationship where you trust your spouse or your partner to pay off bills, only he wasn't. Um, He actually had her paycheck going to an account that he had with another woman. Um, He just didn't pay the bills, um, so her house ended up getting foreclosed. Um, her car got repossessed and when that happened she was like what's going on and he'd say oh it's a mistake like I'll call the bank I'll figure this out this was just a mistake it shouldn't have happened Um, and then she noticed about two years into their relationship that she wasn't getting any mail which I think was another thing that stuck out to me because that is something that you don't even think about it's like we're in such a digital age but mail is a kind of a big important part of our lives and she noticed no junk mail no you know, none of the flyers that you get in your mail, she was getting nothing. Um, and that's when she started really digging into things. She called the post office. They told her that there was a um, someone had put a hold on her mail. And she was like, though, I wasn't that wasn't me. Um, and when she finally was able to get some of her mail, she had to go twice to the post office. That's when she really started digging through the bills and realizing that nothing was getting paid and that there were accounts in her name that she had never started. And when she was learning about these these bills and these accounts that she had never opened, what was going through her mind? Well, I think at that point she was like, all right, I have to get out of here. I think especially when she calls um, to say what's going on with this account, um, they tell she gets passed around a bunch of times with what she told me. And then um, someone finally gets on the phone, you know, asks, starts quizzing her with these like security questions that you have to fill out when you start a bank account or a credit card account. He knew a lot of my answers but there's one that he didn't know. And only my family mm-hmm. knows it. And um, I answered that question and the lady goes, um, it is you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I said, mm-hmm, that's kind of what I've been telling you for the past 15 minutes, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, telling you who I am. They're like, well, we're really sorry to tell you, but you're dead. Um, and she's like, oh, <laughs> how did I die? March 16th. 2011 mm-hmm. and um, I said how did I pass away and she said well I don't have that here and I said well who told you I passed away <laughs> and they said Curtis Robert Williamson and I said okay great I said do you have a phone number you called from it was his phone number everything mm-hmm. um and so I think at that point she was like you know there is the abuse that was happening, the financial control, the emotional abuse, um, things were just really building up. And so at that point, she was like, I need to get out of here. She had started collecting documents the first time she realized there was a hold on her mail. And at that point, she um, went to a Hartley house. She ended up getting a protective order and she then started filing for divorce. And we should say that Harley House is a local women's shelter for people experiencing domestic violence, as well as they sort of offer resources for people in the situation, as well as legal services for them. Yeah. In Monica's case, she couldn't stay at Hartley House just because she had uh, four pets, two dogs and two cats. So she ended up staying with a friend, but she did use their legal services who then helped her with the protective order and then connected her with um, Maryland Voluntary Legal Services, which helped her with her divorce. 
And what about the divorce proceedings stood out? So the divorce proceedings, I think, um, were strange in the fact that both attorneys I talked to that had worked with Monica mentioned that it wasn't about so much the divorce proceedings. Like Things that go on in divorce happened to Monica just like they might happen to someone else. But the discovery process where you're like subpoenaing documents and trying to get information on the other people, that's when they um, realized something was different. And one of the attorneys, um, Ian Hitchcock, actually said that's when we figured out he was living a double life because they could just see all the bank statements. They could see that he was paying for things for this other family from money that Monica was making that the bank account really belonged to um, Williamson and a, another wife um, named Tracy. Um, she would not talk to us for the story, so I'm not sure if they're still married. Um, but that was just like very weird for the um, attorneys and for Monica. And I think the other thing is that Monica said that she had an, ended up coming to court, I think, like 21 times um like that something like that because he kept filing motions so they go through the divorce proceedings she has to go up he never shows up for the divorce hearings she is um awarded a final um divorce um she gets alimony um then he starts filing these motions to be like no the you know he i can't get divorced from this woman because i'm still married to tracy williamson so i want an annulment um he started filing motions after motions which would just mean that she'd have to come to court um Already Monica was struggling because she was dead and, you know, hadn't had stopped working because he had asked her to. And so she now had to leave this job that she was able to find after having the difficulties of finding a job while being technically dead. Um, She had to keep coming to court with these motions. And the idea of being declared dead seems sort of outlandish and it seems crazy, but it has real implications for someone like Monica and restricts her in the things that she can do. Yeah, and, I mean, it ruins your credit. I mean, he was stealing from her anyway, uh, is what she said. So then she had very little money, and then, you know, have these, um, to have be dead, it, like, really affects the ability to open up a bank account. It opens, uh, affects the opportunity to get a new house, get a loan, all these things, because your credit score is tied to your um, death, and your social security number is tied to your death. So she had to basically declare herself alive again. But I think you had talked to some people about the idea of becoming alive after being declared dead. Yeah, I'd reached out to the Social Security Administration to sort of get some background for the story. And they said that they handle about 2.8 million deaths a year. And those notices can come from funeral homes. They can come from financial institutions. And they can also come from family members. And they said about one third of 1% each year sort of need to be overturned or corrected because there was some sort of mistake. So it's a really small percentage, but still one third of 1% out of 2.8 million is several thousand people each year sort of have to go through this process of bringing in their documents and showing that they're still alive and doing well, as well as sort of switching the the systems to not declare them dead and put up fraud alerts every time they want to do something with a bank or with a job. And I think it's important to mention that while Monica had fin- uh, was abused financially and physically, um, she also had to deal with a lot of emotional abuse. Um, he was, what she said, an expert at gaslighting. And gaslighting is this um, technique of manipulation, essentially, to make a person doubt themselves. You always have an excuse or another way to tell the story so that they just start doubting their own version of events. Um, and one thing that really stuck out for me is she mentioned that they would go to the movies. And even, you know, this movie might start or the commercials might start. And before that, um, he would pick up and say, oh, I had to go to the bathroom. And she'd be like, okay. And then he wouldn't come back and she'd be like that's a little weird like she was sitting through the movie um and she'd get done with the movie and maybe he came back towards the end or 
he would meet her outside but then she went to go to the car where they had parked it um the car wasn't there and he said oh no you just can't remember you're just not feeling well um that's so the car is actually two you know two blocks over or you know two lines in the parking lot over yeah and some of the uh researchers and people that i've talked to about gaslighting say that well in one instance that seems sort of not a big deal to to tell someone that they had misremembered something but when it happens over and over again to someone who's being abused it sort of makes them question their reality so later on things like the physical abuse or this missing money she can sort of wonder and question whether she is in the right and what she's seeing is true or whether something is wrong with her mind and really undermines the person's sense of reality which helps someone who's abusing them and i think that they're it is worth bringing up that Monica talked about not going to the police because we asked if she decided to go to the police. And she said, you know, and when you're in that situation, you often just don't go to the police. And gaslighting plays into that. You just, you don't know if your reality is the same. So why would you think about going to the police? Because this guy that you married to or you love is telling you that it didn't happen or is asking you not to go. And so you are in this weird a reality that makes you kind of question everything. Um, but she did go to the police after her divorce hearings, um, and she went to the police and the state's attorney's office and the district court commissioner's office, she said, um, but unfortunately no charges were pressed at the time. Um, she had filed charges, and they were not um, taken on by the district court commissioner's office, so there were no charges filed against him, um, except for the contempt of court that he eventually ended up in for not paying alimony. And with your research, you've talked to more than a dozen people and you've looked over tons of documents. With those conversations, those sort of documents, what picture has it painted of Curtis Williamson? So, yes, I did pour over lots of documents and I did talk to a lot of people and I still don't know who Curtis Williamson is. Um, I think that's because most of what I'm seeing are police reports or divorce hearings um, or these documents, um, even in a yearbook that I tracked him down to, but I was never actually able to talk to him myself. So I can't ask, hey, Curtis, who are you, um, to the actual direct source. And most of what I can find is defined by his actions. I was able to talk to his first wife, Teresa Salhammer, and she lives in Hagerstown. Um, He met her in high school. They didn't go to the same high school, but they were both the same year. Um, They started dating when they were juniors and dated for about 13 months. Um, She's not really sure why they kept dating for that long. Um, Her quote that she told me was that she was 17. Um, But they got married because she got pregnant. And I think that was kind of the um, thing that stuck out about this marriage was it definitely felt like a marriage of obligation and not something that he planned. Uh, When they finally had the baby, he kind of pretended like he wasn't a father. He cared for the son when he was with Teresa, but he never wanted to be seen in public with his son. Um, he could be seen in public with her, just not if she had the baby with her or when his son grew up, the son. And you have these stories of abuse between Curtis and Monica. Did his first wife experience anything similar to what than what happened to Monica? She didn't really. She said that maybe a little bit of the financial stuff he would tell her like oh i'm going to be need a hundred dollars for this charge and maybe he'd take out 200 instead of 100 um so there wasn't the abuse that you saw with monica or the um the financial emotional um manipulation but one thing that did stick out is that when i asked Teresa about uh curtis williamson she said that he just kept repeating that he's a liar um he was a liar from the beginning he lied about his birthday to her uh, and she found that very strange because they were in high school there was no uh, reason to but he said that he was a couple months older than he was 
um, which she always found was a little strange. And she just said that everything was a lie with him. So, Heather, you've done a number of stories on domestic violence and abuse. And with this story, obviously, there's some things that stand out, like declaring Monica dead, this weird thing about lying about his age to someone he was very intimately with. But this this story became a series, and why was that? So the series, uh, the story became a series because it wasn't just Monica and it wasn't just Teresa. Um, even from the beginning when I met with Monica, the first thing she kind of said as to, after we went through all the stuff um, that happened to her was, I, it's not just me. I know of another wife. And Monica mentioned, oh, and by the way, I'm the fourth wife. So we have Teresa, who's the first wife. Tracy, um, who wouldn't talk to us, is the second wife. Um, there was a third wife that I was not able to get a hold of, but I was able to talk to Monica, the fourth wife, and Stephanie, the fifth wife. And so I make sure I'm following the timeline, correct? How long after Curtis's marriage with Monica did he get in touch with Stephanie? Well, the first time was in 2011. And I know the timeline's a little confusing, but 2011 was still when he was married to Monica. And that was even before she was really starting to question their marriage. So uh, she thought that they were moving to Florida because Williamson had told Monica multiple times, we're going to move to Florida for my job. So she was planning for that move. And Williamson was on dating apps, uh, meeting a, a woman named Stephanie Fur in West Virginia. And what have you learned about Stephanie and their relationship? So Stephanie said that she stopped talking to him around 2011 the first time just because he kept saying, hey, let's get you know coffee or let's go to a movie. And she'd get childcare, she'd get ready to go, and she'd get there and he never showed up. So she just decided not to pursue this any further. But in 2013... Um, after Kurt Williamson had left uh, Monica, they reconnected and she decided to give him a chance again. Now, an important part about this story is that when she was looking at the dating apps and she was meeting this man, she was not in fact meeting Curtis Williamson, but Kurt Williams, a name that Curtis Williamson was using on the dating apps. So the timeline you lay out is Williamson leaves his relationship or marriage with, with Monica that was very abusive how did he enter into this new relationship with Stephanie in West Virginia? Well, I think using that fake name, he kind of created this fake persona, at least in the beginning. Um, so here was Kurt Williams. Uh, he was working, or at least that's what he said. Um, and Stephanie said he was Prince Charming. Like There was poetry. There were flowers. He always was there for the dates. Um, when they decided to get married um, pretty early on in the relationship because he wanted a kid and um, they decided if they wanted to have kids, they should move pretty quick. Um, he hid her ring in her favorite cookie. So it was just all these like little things that made her fall for him. Um, and then they had the kid and he did the same thing with her where he said, don't worry about the financials. Um, but Stephanie was actually working at the time and had, um, her company was offering voluntary layoffs, and he said, you should take it. You weren't able to be there um, when your daughter was growing up, and you. And she said, I missed out on a lot. So she decided to take the voluntary layoff, and he said, don't worry, I'm working, so I can handle all the financials. And this layoff that he asked her to take, it sounded like he's sort of beginning to isolate her. Yeah, so I want to say that the relationship with Stephanie um, is a little bit more... Um, like a typical domestic violence relationship than maybe Monica's, where he really p 
perfected his isolation game. Um, with Monica, he was isolating her. He wouldn't let her go to, out to eat with her family um, or her friends. If her family wanted to contact her, he'd say, she doesn't want to talk to you. She will get upset. They kind of listened to that. Um, but with Stephanie, he really like he made, it, made it so that she wouldn't go to work because she was going to stay home with the kids. Um, she had to a pretty close family and they all lived in the area and she was actually a power of attorney for her grandmother which is an important part of the story and she wasn't allowed to talk to her family um he went as far as taking her cell phone so if her aunt and uncle texted her to ask what's going on or how she's doing he might respond or she may never see that text message because he had the phone and she had to use ask permission to use it um, she said that it got so bad that if I took too long in the bathroom, he would just fling the door open. Um, and that became an, a crucial part in what happened to Stephanie because she basically got down to the point where she only was able to talk to her grandmother. And that was essentially because she was a power of attorney over her grandmother, which meant he now had access to her grandmother's bank accounts. And since Williamson was given the power of attorney through his marriage to Stephanie, what did that allow him to do? Well, now he had access to both her grandmother's accounts and her accounts. And he did kind of what he did with Monica. He um, opened up uh, new credit cards. He liked to buy electronics with credit cards. Um, He actually even ended up attaching her grandmother's account to his account somehow, like one of his credit cards so that he was paying off his credit card using her bank account. And basically the grandmother's very confused as to why her account was being overdrawn when she hardly ever used it. And that kind of got the attention of Stephanie's aunt and uncle, who then started looking into Williamson and what was going on. Um, But I want to say one thing that really stuck out to me that I found was very interesting, and this was from Monica, Stephanie, and then another girlfriend who um, asked that her name not be used, but that I talked to to confirm some things. He liked to use Kohl's charges to open up, like he always opens an account at Kohl's, which I think was a little bit interesting that he had those little things that were always the same, despite what he was doing to the different women. And it wasn't as though he was taking this money or making these charges without his either wife or her her family knowing about it. But how was he able to keep doing this for months at a time? So with the grandmother, it was the idea of um, he had a control of her mail. He stopped her mail so she wasn't seeing bank accounts. So no one was noticing the bank accounts. Stephanie wasn't able to look at the bank accounts because he was control the financials. If something was going on between the grandmother and uh, Williamson and the family wanted to know, and they tried to reach Stephanie. They couldn't. Um, at one point, Stephanie's mom even came to the house, and he told her that she wasn't there, even though he she was. So you just had this like situation of he used isolation so much that people couldn't figure out what was going on. And that's kind of how Stephanie got wrapped up into the charges against Williamson. And what happened that she was included in the charges against him? So uh, the gram- grandmother talked to the aunt and uncle, and they started looking into what was going on they hired a private investigator who found um williamson's previous wives including monica and he was able to uncover a lot of information and with all that they went to the police police started looking into it and they were able to figure out that curtis williamson was um doing some things with the bank accounts that were making it so that the grandmother's account was going into his pocket essentially and so with that because they weren't sure if Stephanie was involved or not, um, and she had talked to police and said, oh, I don't know, my husband controls all the financials. But I think it was a little unclear just because she was there. She some didn't really know what was going on, but kind of did. Um, or she'd say, well, I asked him and he explained this to me. Here's the questions. Or he was supposed to answer these questions and he never did. Um, she ended up getting arrested um, May 31st, uh, 2018. 
So sitting in her jail cell, uh, Stephanie learned a lot of things about her husband. Um, the first is that his name was not Kurt Williams, but instead Kurt, Curtis Williamson. Um, she learned that he was seven years older. Um, and she, then when she got out of jail, um, she was bailed out by her sister. She went home and she was able to see a lot of his documents that he had hidden in the car that she just never had gone through. And that's when she learned even more about him. Well, one thing I think that we should bring up is that he had a son with Stephanie. Um, he had always told her that he wanted a kid. Um, so that's why they kind of rushed with the marriage because they thought that they should, you know, move faster if they want to have kids. And after a while, it really takes a toll on you. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I was under the firm because I had never been married before. Um, I was like, okay, I, I married this guy through better or for worse. And, you know, we had a son. I, I didn't want him to be without a dad like my daughter was. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, I stuck it out. I defended him. I believed him. But it got to the point that no one in my family mm-hmm. and I talked. He told her that he had no children. But actually, he had three from his previous marriages. One with Teresa and two with Tracy. And you have the scene in your story of when his quote-unquote first child was born. Yeah, so he was in the delivery room and Stephanie had their son and he was crying and telling her that he never thought he'd have a son or that he'd never have children. And he has two sons. And we should mention too that this con that you've been talking about with Curtis Williamson, it goes beyond just financials because now he has a son with a last name that isn't anyone's last name. Yes, so Stephanie's child's last name is Williams, which is the name that Stephanie um, thought it was the last name of the husband that she married. And I believe it, that she found some birth certificates where she, he had forged Kurt Williams because his name was really Curtis Williamson. And at this point, Stephanie's back in her home. She's going through these documents that she never really had access to because Curtis was so controlling. Where is Williamson at this point? So I don't know where Williamson is. And that kind of goes back to why we could never have interviewed him for this story because he doesn't return any of the calls that I've left on, the various numbers of, uh, that were listed for him. Some of those numbers aren't even active anymore or are no longer attached to him. I called some very lovely people who kindly told me that they did not know who Curtis Williamson was when I called those numbers. Um, but it's also important to notice that he likes to repeat some things. So in addition to the isolation, he declared Stephanie dead and he declared Stephanie's grandmother dead. And she's still kind of, they're both figuring out that mess. Um, Stephanie eventually moved away from West Virginia, but she said that she's still having issues. Her credit card is, or sorry, her credit scores are still very low. Um, she still has the same thing where she has to worry about taxes. He had filed her taxes incorrectly. Um, so all these sorts of financial messes that he left when he um, got out of jail. So he was um, bailed out of jail. He was able to put up his own cash bail for about $15,000 after his initial bill had been reduced. And Stephanie has not seen him since. So she does not know where he is, um, except that they had to go through some illegal proceedings as well. There was the custody. Um, she has full custody of their child, but he did fight that. Um, and they also got annulled because they were able to, pr- their marriage was annulled because they were able to prove um, that Curtis Williamson had never divorced Tracy Williamson. So it sounds like Stephanie has a very similar story to what happened to Monica years earlier. Were the two women ever able to connect? Yes. Yeah, so there were actually a lot of very little details that are very similar between the two. Um, 
But they were able to connect because Stephanie's aunt had hired a private investigator who had found Monica to talk about what was going on with Curtis Williamson. And Stephanie also ended up having to hire her own private investigator because she needed to prove the annulment um, that he, that Curtis Williamson was still married to Tracy. So the two were able to connect. And actually, when I met with Monica in December, she told me that there was that Stephanie was involved in the story and had kind of told me that there was a fifth wife and that she was the fourth wife. So in, back in December, when I first started working on this project, I knew that I needed to pull these documents. I needed to talk to Stephanie. I needed to talk to Monica maybe again. I was hoping to find the first through third wife. Um, and I thought, well, I have a pretty good story. This is already pretty intense and interesting that there's five wives. Um, and I was kind of waiting and had kind of stalled a little bit while I was hoping to get in touch with Stephanie. So it seems this story here, you have these two wives, Monica and Stephanie, that are number four and five, and these very similar things happen to them. They meet this man who seems very charming, who's very interesting and very interested in them, and then things sort of start to go downhill as he gets more and more controlling, controlling things like their finances and isolating them from their families and friends as they leave jobs, and he encourages them to to leave jobs. And as he has financial control, he makes these decisions such as declaring them dead opening cards in in their name and charging these outlandish amounts of money to their name and leaving them with with quite a bit of debt, as well as this sort of declared debt statement that they have to dig themselves out of. That's a pretty good summary of what happened. Um, Yeah, and it was a pretty interesting story to begin with. um, And I was working on that until about February. Every once in a while, I'd check in with Monica and say, hey, how are things going? because she told me that no one had seen from Curtis Williamson. I was checking case search almost every day just to say, all right, did the body attachment that was um, put on him get picked up? Did he Was he arrested? So I was checking um, case search um, to see if the body attachment from the divorce hearings had been um, put on him. He was actually also wanted in West Virginia because he put um, he made bail and then he fled the state essentially. So he was no longer in West Virginia that people could tell. So that's kind of where the story stood for most of the end of December and the beginning of the year. Yeah, and we had talked about this and sort of been following it and verifying it with court records or police documents and just sort of going back to, to Monica to make sure that what she had told us a couple of months ago was still still true. And you had not been able to speak to Stephanie because she was in the middle of this sort of legal battle and figuring out what was going to happen to her. Yeah, and that's kind of where the story stood until beginning of March Um, and then I got an email from Monica Um, she said that she and Stephanie had found Curtis Williamson Stephanie was able to talk uh, but Curtis Williamson was not in Maryland Um, he was not in West Virginia he was actually in North Carolina and he had a new girlfriend we need to say that through Heather's entire reporting process she has made multiple attempts to reach Curtis Williamson and he has been able to be reached and not returned any sort of message out to get his side of the story as well as the the ex-wives that she has spoken to and the various girlfriends. Their stories have been verified through multiple interviews, as well as a number of court documents and police records. At this time, Williamson has not been caught and been able to stand trial for his crimes. So as we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, um, we are in the middle of a marriage con series. 
Um, so we will be doing another podcast about the series later on this week to kind of recap everything that did happen and dive a little bit more into the reporting that was done on it. But if you want to get um, caught up, if you haven't read it already or you want to reread the series, you can find the entire series online at fredericknewspost.com or you can pick up a copy at the Frederick News Post. Frederick Uncut is produced by me, Wyatt Massey. And me, Heather Mangelio. And edited by Graham Cullen.